The views, comments, stories, and opinions within this podcast are my own or those of my guests, and in no way represent the views of the company or companies that I or we work for. Last time on Squawk Ident, we dove into what it's like being on the flight line and how I got into running in a segment called On the Run. We also spoke a little bit about how I, Aviator Tony, got into this whole flying gig. It was an adventure. It was our first podcast, and it was absolutely a blast. And I'm glad you tuned in. This week on Squawk Ident, we're going to dive into a really nice sequence that I just flew. It was a 2-2-1, meaning two legs on the first day, two legs on the second day, and one leg on the third. It was a nice phoenix followed by a lahui overnight. I got a chance to go for a nice long run, and we're going to even have some audio from that. I'll even share a good story with you from the There We Were segment, where we talk about stories from the flight line. We're also going to talk a little bit about the kit bag. So stay tuned. Thank you for being here. Tray tables up. The show is about to begin. Squawk Ident is an entertainment podcast dedicated to the journey and the challenges surrounding the life and career of Aviator Tony, an airline pilot currently flying for a legacy airline with close to 20 years on the flight line. This is episode two of Squawk Ident, recorded on October 6th, 2019 from the Aviator Studios located somewhere in Southern California. Hello and welcome back to the show. Well, last week was a really big adventure for me. A lot of learning, a lot of trial and error to get that first podcast off the ground. I had to learn a lot about editing and software required and equipment. And it took me a good two weeks to really dive into it and get all the information sunk in. And I'm still learning. I'm sure I'll continue to learn as I develop this podcast. And I'd like to thank you for coming along with me on this journey. It's been an absolute blast producing this. Well, let's get into the show. So this week, I had a really nice trip. It started out early in the morning, which for me is kind of a difficult thing. I actually do prefer starting a trip later in the afternoon. As I mentioned in the last episode, the traffic in Southern California is relentless. And to start a trip on a Friday morning uh, is, is kind of a bear. So I had to get up real early. Uh, the night before of my trips are usually the same. I have a routine that I like to keep consistent, and that usually involves getting a really good night's sleep, packing everything I might need for the trip, uh, usually in the afternoon, the day before the trip. I'll check the weather of the locations where I'm going, and I'll also kind of dive into where the layover hotels are going to be. If it's obviously a... 11 or 12 hour overnight, which is relatively short, uh, more than likely the layover hotel is going to be at the airport. And if it is, with 11 hours, really the only thing you're going to be doing is sleeping and maybe 
you might have enough time to grab a meal in there. So this week, uh, I did not have that situation. I actually had decent long layovers at both of the layover locations. So as I said, the, the day before, I packed my bags, got ready for a nice trip, and went through my routine, got my kit bag in order. I also made sure that my EFB uh, was fully charged from the night before. My phone was fully charged. Any updates that needed to be done, I like to do them at home. The Wi-Fi I have at home is definitely uh, better than some of the Wi-Fi sometimes at the airport, and which is a whole other topic. Uh, what's going on with LAX? Why do cell phone carriers have such a hard time with signals at LAX? I've got a little bit of information on that, which I might share in a later episode, but it is a little frustrating. We actually have Wi-Fi down in our operations or our crew room, which is very good. This is meant for pilots to update their EFBs, but like I said, I like to go ahead and take care of that at home. So day one started out with a 5 a.m. alarm, woke me up, and I expected it, was ready to go pretty quick. Jumped in the shower, got dressed, and had my uniform hanging from the night before so that I wasn't scrambling looking for a piece that I needed, wings or epaulets or ties and whatnot. So on this morning was the first morning that I wore a tie that I don't normally wear, that is, throughout the year. For October, I wear a very special tie that's very near and dear to me, the pink tie. You've seen aviators and flight attendants and crew members alike around the airport and on the aircraft in the month of October supporting breast cancer, a disease that affects most everyone I know. We all have met someone, know someone, or have a family member afflicted by this disease. The company I work for, Legacy Airlines, has been good enough to partner up in years past with the Susan G. Komen Foundation, and I would just like to spend a few minutes giving you a little bit of background on that. Susan Goodman Komen was born on October 31, 1943, in Peoria, Illinois. She was diagnosed with breast cancer at 33 years old. That's young. She died of the disease only three years later, on August 4, 1980. Coleman's younger sister, Nancy Goodman Brinker, who believed that Susan's outcome might have been better if patients knew more about cancer and its treatments. She promised her sister that she would do everything she could to end breast cancer. To fulfill that promise, Brinker founded the Susan G. Komen Breast Cancer Foundation in Komen's memory in 1982. In 2008, the 25th anniversary of the organization, the name was changed to Susan G. Komen for the Cure. And it was trademarked with that all too familiar pink ribbon. So this Nonprofit was put together to raise funds, to raise awareness, and to get financing for breast cancer research. It's an important cause 
that is near and dear to my heart. So when you see a crew member, be it a pilot, flight attendant, or even a gate agent, sporting pink in the month of October, they're doing it to support all of those who have suffered from breast cancer or know someone who does. So after getting ready, I had a quick bite, a cup of coffee for here and a cup of coffee to go. Jumped in the car and started tackling the traffic. Now on this particular morning, I gave myself two hours, which is really double the time I would have needed if I was going to work on a non-traffic time frame. Uh, so I thought, well, two hours should be enough. Uh, usually, uh, I've left two hours before and I've got to the employee parking lot with time to spare. And I always try to give myself about 30 to 45 minutes of buffer time driving in because the last thing I need to do is start a trip stressed out about getting to the airport on time, signing in on time. You know, I really don't want that much pressure on me. I'd rather get there a little earlier and grab another cup of coffee. As you know, us aviators, well, not all of us, but most of us do partake in quite a bit of coffee. It's both a kind of a social fix that we use to have something in our hand as we're talking and chit-chatting with people. And also, let's face it, coffee with the hours that we keep in this profession is definitely a big part of staying alert, staying awake, and staying fresh. So I get to the airport, and this morning it didn't take two hours. It took about two hours and 40 minutes, completely chewed into my buffer that I left. So by the time I was getting on the employee bus, it was about five minutes to sign in. That is cutting it real close for me. So luckily, the employee bus didn't have to wait behind other vehicles for an airplane to cross. If you've ever commuted and hopped on the employee bus for an airline at a major airport and the bus has to go through the airport movement area, you can probably relate to this. Sometimes it could take five minutes to get from the bus lot to the terminal and other times it could take 30 just because you have aircraft traffic that are holding all the movement of the vehicles that are going around the airport. So this morning, I was very lucky that the bus didn't get held up for any reason, made my sign-in with at least a minute to spare. So there goes some pressure right there. But I really didn't have time to stop in operations before the flight. Luckily, I had done all my updates at home, and I had everything I needed for the trip. So straight to the gate. And as I got to the gate, I saw that uh, no one really had checked in yet, but the gate agents were there, ready to go. The passengers were starting to get anxious as they're watching the sign behind the gate as it's changing 40 minutes before boarding, 35 minutes before boarding. Everyone starts to stand up and hover. It's actually pretty typical. Just relax, people. Have a seat. Stay comfortable, sip your coffee. When they call your group, get up. Until then, what can you do? 
just relax. So I just walked past, said hello to the gate agent. A good morning. How are you? Beautiful day. You ready to do this? Let's do this. So I scanned in for the flight, head on down the jet bridge and put all my accoutrement in the cockpit. I stowed my bags and got my quick glance of the cockpit, making sure that all the switches were in the right places and that the logbook was there. Logbook looked good. No maintenance being performed. I can do a walk around. So is it just me, or are you just as enamored with the pre-flight walk around? I don't know what it is. First thing in the morning, you get to the airplane, you go down that jet bridge, you're bombarded by smells, sounds, the wind. I don't know what it is. It's just the sounds of the APUs whining. The PCA cart blowing that preconditioned air into the aircraft. The A380 that's across the aisle that's starting its number one engine with the whiz of the bleed air rushing through its air turbine starter. The rumble of the heavy diesel tug pulling it to a stop. As the guide man signals to the captain to set the parking brake, the squeak from the rollers on the belt loader that's loading the forward cargo hold of my aircraft as I hear the baggage handlers giving each other a hard time, the smell of the belt loader's exhaust, the vapors from the fuel truck pumping thousands of pounds of Jet A into our aircraft. It's just a feeling, a familiar feeling, something that's very intimidating at first. But after years of this, there's something almost poetic about it. As I walk past, one of the rampers catches my eye and says, good morning. I give him a thumbs up and a nod, because unless he could read my lips, there's no way he can understand or hear my good morning in return with all that hearing protection on. As I finish up the walk around for the forward part of the aircraft, I look at the fan blades and inspect the fan blades of our CFM 56.5B powered A319 as I listen for the tap 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 of the N1 blades as it slowly rotates with the wind. After finishing my inspection of the landing gear, I give the landing gear a superstitious kick with the side of my foot and listen for that thunk, a good check of the hydraulic lines to make sure there are no leaks, brake wear indicators in place. As I round the rear cargo hold, the belt loader now full of bags, ground crew sputtering affectionate insults to each other to cement the bond of laborious teamwork. I soak it all in as I round the tail section of the aircraft looking up to avoid the sun as it rises above the haze of Southern California. I just can't help but feeling like this is where I'm meant to be, at least right now. As I climb back up the jet bridge stairs, I pause for a moment at the top and look back at the aircraft. From an elevated vantage point, I smile. 
and I appreciate that I have climbed more than just a jet bridge to get to this very moment. I have leaped over hurdles, struggled through the hardships, learned from my errors, and stood on the many shoulders of those who lifted me up to get here. Let's get this bird in the air, I think to myself, and I re-enter the cockpit, ready to start my day. As I stood at the edge of the jet bridge, I saw that my crew, including my captain, were all standing in the first class galley, briefing each other on the journey ahead. It was the first time I met Captain Randy. He was a great guy. We asked each other the usual questions, found out he was a commuter coming in from Oregon. I said my hellos to the flight attendant crew. Everybody seemed ready to go. So as I settled into the flight deck, I stowed my bags, did my pre-flight checks, and off we were. Another typical morning in Los Angeles. Not a lot of traffic. We got pushed back right away. As we headed towards 25 right for departure, the usual checks, the usual radio calls. Through 10,000 feet, the ding. As we continued our climb, we finally started asking each other questions about what we were interested in, what we were doing before this. Turns out, a captain and I had quite a bit in common. Between motorcycles and talking about RVs and camping, and it really did bring back a lot of memories. Things I hadn't talked about or even thought about for years. Camping as a child with my family. Here we were, Italian immigrants, settling down in California. My father would hook up our trailer every summer. We would tow that thing around and we'd go to every national park we can squeeze into in the course of a few weeks. Memories that I'll cherish forever, all sparked by a conversation had between two relative strangers. We weren't strangers anymore, though, as is on a typical flight. You really do have a lot of time to get to know each other and share stories and opinions, ideas. We talk about so many things, not just about aviation and hobbies, but relationships and family, children. I often joke around that I'm in my cockpit therapy session every day for at least two legs. That first day seemed to go off without a hitch. Everything worked out okay. The layover was not bad. We met downstairs after getting settled into the room and went out for a bite to eat. We ended up, through his recommendation, going to Seamus McCaffrey's downtown. It's a really quaint Irish pub and restaurant. They had live music, being that it was a Friday night. We ordered some wings and had an IPA, and we got to share some stories. He told me about his trip to Ireland, and he highly recommended that we try a whiskey that he had there. So we did. A Teeling small batch whiskey. I'd never had it before. He went on to tell me how much he enjoyed this 
Irish whiskey that he had had in Ireland. We told more stories, listened to some good music, and then it was getting late. After all, it was the end of day one. So we called it a night, but before we headed off, a quick check of the schedule. Make sure we agreed upon the van time. And it came to find out, did you know we're scheduled for a line check tomorrow? Oh, the dreaded line check. So, not a big deal, really. But it doesn't matter how many years of experience you have, how many thousands or ten thousands of hours you have logged. A line check is a line check, and it always comes with at least a degree of anxiety. Why do line checks make us feel this way? Well, for those of you who don't know, a line check is when an inspector or a check airman, as we call them, rides in the cockpit observing both pilots. At the end of the flight, they usually give us debrief items. This is what you did wrong. This is what you could have done better. They are Jeopardy events, even though they're just there to observe, which is a requirement to keep your currency. And it doesn't really matter how confident you are in the aircraft. That pressure is always there looming. Some people really get nervous, and others play it off as it's no big deal. But deep down, everyone I've ever spoken with about it agrees that being on a line check, having a line check performed, is always an added stressor. Ours went off without a hitch. Our check airman was, was quiet at first, but opened up a little bit throughout the flight. It was a good landing. Turned off the runway, contact ground, and then we taxied to the gate. After concluding our parking checklist, he said, good job, guys. Thanks for making it look easy. What a relief. After hearing him say that, we knew that it maybe it wasn't something to be worried about after all. Do any of you aviators out there get nervous for line checks? How about check rides? Of course, there's always a sense of being prepared and doing your best, but there's also a sense of, I don't want to mess this up. I'd love to hear from you. Send me your comments or email through the link provided on whatever platform you're listening to this podcast, or you can feel free to email me directly at aviatortony at gmail.com. That's A-V, the number 8, R, Tony at gmail.com. On a future show, I'd like to detail what goes on on a trans-Pacific crossing, but it's pretty involved, so we'll save that for another show. We got to the hotel in Lahui relatively quickly after we landed, but as you can imagine, between the line check in the morning, the two hours sit in LA, and then the five and a half hour crossing, it was a very long day. The only thing that you really want to make sure you get done after you land and park the aircraft is to get to the hotel as quickly as you can. 
so that you can settle in. Take your shoes off, your uniform, and just relax. Well, we all arrived at the hotel and come to find out that five of the six rooms were not ready. So, what can you do? We did our best to remain calm, and the hotel staff was actually very cooperative. They handed us each vouchers to go and grab a drink and a meal on them. We all took turns changing in the small restroom down in the lobby so that we were in our street clothes. You can't have anybody seeing you have a tasty beverage in uniform. So after we changed, we headed out to the poolside bar. The sounds of the ocean waves crashing on shore helped make a frustrating situation just a little bit better. It wasn't long after that the hostess came by with room keys for us all. What could have been a frustrating evening actually finished off quite nicely. So that was my trip, at least the first two days of it. Not bad. A lot of stories shared. A couple potentially frustrating events that turned out okay. Well, we're about halfway through this week's episode, and I would just like to say thank you for all of you listening and tuning in. I'd love to hear your comments. Feel free to use the link on whatever platform you're listening to this podcast and reach out and contact me. So every week I do stress the importance of staying fit. I do my best to get out there and get in my daily exercise. And what better way to do that than when you're on a layover in paradise? Though I did sleep in a little bit, more than I usually would, I still was able to get up by about 9 o'clock in the morning, throw on some running shoes and get out the door. Now I can't stress enough how important it is to wear a good hat when you run. The sun can be very relentless, especially when you're on Hawaii or wherever you were running. Always make sure you have sunscreen, a bottle of water, and a phone or a way to contact help if you need it. So there I was, about 9.15 by the time I got out the door. And I ran on a trail that I have run on probably a good dozen times before. As I got to about the halfway point in my run, I turned around and thought, you know what, maybe I'm going to try making an audio recording that I can put onto this podcast later. And I did. Here is just a little bit from that run. Hope you enjoy it. Here I am running along the Ka'alehale Makalei Path on the eastern side of Kauai at Pailuku Beach, also known as Donkey Beach. I'm about three and a half miles into this run. I've probably ran this trail or this route at least a dozen times in the past year. And I've got to tell you, it never gets old. 
just to be able to be here on a layover at work, enjoying myself, running along paradise. It is absolutely amazing to watch the waves crash against the rocks and I'm jogging along at a slower pace than I've run in the past because, let's face it, getting older sucks. My father used to tell me as a child, Anthony, don't ever get old. Well, I should have listened to him. But here I am in my 40s, picking up the pace, running along the trail, watching the tourists pull out their cell phones and taking the most majestic of photos. It is just amazing. This is only one of the myriad of things you can look forward to when you make it to a legacy carrier, you stay healthy, you get out, you break out from that layover hotel and do something other than sit at the pool. So much to do, so much to see. Helicopter tours, car rentals, bike rentals. It doesn't have to be expensive. And a lot of these hotels have great deals for airline crew. I can find myself quite often snorkeling off the coast of Maui, riding a bike through the small town of Whaler's Village. This is what it's all about right here. Getting in a run and enjoying the splendid views. Well, I'm off to tack on a couple more miles before I get cleaned up for the day. Cheers. Well, there you have it. That was this week's On the Run. Next up, a segment we like to call Behind the Flight Deck Door. And what I was going to do is outline what happens during a taxi out, during a high workload time of the flight, which is when you're taxiing from the gate to the runway. And on the particular flight that I'm thinking about, it's the Los Angeles to Lahui flight. Uh, paperwork's a little bit more rigorous than a normal flight because it is considered international over water. So, you know, we have a probably another two pages of checklists to go through just to make sure that everything is in order. And the briefing that we give each other in the flight deck there before we push off the gate, we always talk about what we can expect after we push off the gate, how we're going to get to the runway, uh, performance numbers, weather, planned return in the event that something goes wrong and we have to come back immediately to the airport. How are we going to do that? Uh, sometimes we even have to talk about special procedures that the company performance engineers have put together in the event that there is some kind of failure with the aircraft and we have to come back. Los Angeles has a standard procedures, so uh, we brief all this. And as we were taxiing out, the new ATIS came out. So I went ahead and retrieved that ATIS information from the flight management computer. And so out come the new ATIS, come to find out that runway 24 left, 
which is what we originally briefed, was closed for some scheduled maintenance. So we were then told by ATC soon thereafter that we could anticipate a departure from 2-4 right, which is the northernmost runway in a western direction off of Los Angeles. But the runways are of different lengths. So we have to make sure that not only do we update the flight computers to ensure that the aircraft knows exactly where it is and what runway we're taking off on, but we also have to ensure that we have performance for that. As you can imagine, an aircraft flying for five and a half hours over the ocean needs to have quite a bit of fuel on board, which means the airplane is relatively heavy. So if we're going to be taking off on a runway that's a little bit shorter than the original one, we always have to be very diligent in making sure that we have the performance to take off and we're not too heavy. So as you can imagine, I got relatively busy. As a first officer, it's my job that any changes to performance, runways, flight plans is going to be entered into the computer by myself because the captain's duties during the taxi, he's driving. He has the tiller, he has the control of the aircraft on the ground. So we were able to stop the airplane on a taxiway because we were waiting for another aircraft to taxi into the international terminal. So it gave us an opportunity to change the FMS, request the new numbers, enter the new performance data, and rebrief the departure all while the aircraft was stopped, which is the ideal way to do it because when the aircraft is in motion, to have one of the pilots have their head down in the cockpit and not looking out can be a dangerous situation or at least increase the workload of the captain who is looking outside of the aircraft, controlling the aircraft on the ground. So we were fortunate that that was the scenario that unfolded. And after about a minute or two of reviewing all the numbers, updating the departure briefing, we finally got everything situated. Turned out it was a flaps three takeoff, toga thrust, APU on, which is a relatively high performance takeoff. No big deal. We just ran through our standard operating procedures and it was a very uneventful takeoff and uneventful flight, which is good. That's what we want. Boring is good. So that's just a little update on what we're doing up there. Sometimes it can get very hectic for something as easy as a runway change. And now it's time for There We Were. I share a tale of aviation past. As is with any good story, joke, or tale, I find it is usually best received if it is told in the first person. With that said, the tales that I share may or may not have happened or occurred in the manner in which I tell them. 
The details have been changed to protect the innocent and the guilty alike. With that said, this is There We Were. So years ago, and I'm talking years and years ago, I was a young first officer flying out of Chicago O'Hare. And flying in and out of Chicago O'Hare for over 13 years, I can tell you that it is quite an adventure, especially in wintertime operations. So I was flying with a captain, we'll call him Frank, and Frank was a very soft-spoken individual, a young guy who was just a really nice guy. I never heard him raise his voice. I never heard him swear. And so here we were at the end gates at Chicago O'Hare in a snowstorm about 11 o'clock at night with a fully loaded aircraft waiting for the de-ice truck to come by and spray down our aircraft so we can get going. Now at the time, the operator that I flew for, we'll call them regional airlines, uh, they did the de-icing at the gate. And once you were de-iced, you then would get pushback clearance and you'd be on your way. And the flight we were doing in that particular evening was Chicago to Milwaukee, Wisconsin, And then from there, we would continue on to Marquette, Michigan. So the first leg was a relatively short leg. Usually it's about a 20 to 25 minute flight. And the snow was coming down pretty good. It was still considered light snow, but it was definitely a snowstorm that was affecting uh, a large area of the Midwest. So as we were sitting there in the cockpit, waiting for a de-ice truck to fit us into their uh, waiting aircraft list. And I just instinctively decided, you know what, let me pull up the weather at our destination because we are behind schedule. And the weather that we had was from the flight release was from hours before. So I pulled up a digital ATIS. And as I'm reading through the ATIS, I read at the bottom an advisory that the airport is closed. So I look at Frank and I say, hey, uh, Frank, where are we going again? And he looked at me kind of like, what, are you serious? And he says, well, we're going to Milwaukee. I'm like, are you sure about that? And I hand him the digital latest, the printout, and he's reading through it. And he's like, oh, my goodness. So I'm kind of dating myself here, but I pull out my cell phone, which at the time was a fancy smartphone, okay, at least a first-generation smartphone, the Palm Centrino. Yeah, I know. But at the time, it was like the big thing. So I pull out this Palm Centrino, and I have this, you know, mobile internet access. And I pull up what would be later referred to as the mobile FAA website. And I plug in, you know, ground stops, ground delays, and it comes up with the link. And it tells me that Milwaukee is, in fact, closed. And furthermore, that the glide slope on the runway in use was inoperative. So it was going to be either a VOR or a localizer approach. Now, mind you, it's late at night. It's in a snowstorm. And our alternate 
was Grand Rapids on the other side of Lake Michigan. Now, at the time of the flight release, Grand Rapids was a good alternate. The weather was fine, but this is hours later. So I pull up weather for Grand Rapids as well, and it turns out they are starting to see the effects of the snowstorm. So Frank decides to call our dispatcher. And as he pulls out his phone, flips it open and raises the antenna, he calls our dispatcher. And as he answers, he is clearly frustrated. He says, what do you want? Frank says, well, you know, I... I'm kind of concerned. We're, we're still here at the gate. We're waiting to get de-iced. Once that happens, you have us going to an airport that is closed. And our dispatcher replied with, well, what are you talking about? That's, that's not, no, it's not. And he says, well, I just pulled the ATIS up. It says airport closed until 6 a.m. local time tomorrow. So the dispatcher says, well, okay, well, let me call the tower over there and I'll call you right back. So as he hangs up, I'm giving him this information that I pulled up while he was on the phone indicating that, hey, the glide slope is going to be inoperative on the ILS when we get there. It's either going to be localizer only minimums or VOR minimums. So depending on the weather, we may not be able to make it in. Let's make sure that we have a good alternate here. And so here we are discussing this and his phone rings. And as he answers the phone, the dispatcher indicates to to Captain Frank that the airport is in fact closed. However, it's only closed because they're de-icing, and as soon as we get in range, they'll reopen it for us, because we were scheduled to go there anyway, and their tower was open 24 hours at the time. So Frank says, okay, well, that's fine, but we have another problem. The issue that we're having is that It says here that the glide slope is inoperative on the active runway. And our dispatcher just didn't believe it. He says, I see no notums here that there are any glide slope uh, out of service. So where are you getting your information? He says, well, my first officer just pulled it up on his phone. And the dispatcher says, well, your first officer's cell phone is not an official form of communication for us. So no, that's not true. The glide slope's working. And Frank is now getting very upset. And he says, listen, I'm not leaving here until we either figure out a better alternate or a better airport, because I'm not going to sit there and putz around over Lake Michigan in the dark, in a snowstorm with an alternate that is not even suitable. And the dispatcher replies with, well, you're just trying to change the alternate because let me guess you somewhere where you live, so you can go home and you're just going to go to your alternate anyway. And Frank said, what the hell are you talking about? He goes, I'll delay the flight until I'm ready. I'll call you back. And he hangs up and I hadn't seen him raise his voice before. So it was a little startling. He's I can't believe that guy. So, You know, some time went on, and we were trying to gather as much information as we could. I was pulling up ATISs quite often, and and sure enough, the weather did get better. And it it got up to what the localizer-only minimums were. At the same time, they had finished D 
de-icing the aircraft, and we were getting ready to push off the gate. So Frank calls the dispatcher back and says, okay, listen, the weather is now uh, enough for the minimum descent altitude on the localizer-only approach, so I'll go ahead and go. But I want two alternates for uh, the event in the event that we can't get in. Okay, so he agreed, and we got a couple more alternates tacked on to our flight release. So we take off, we get out there, and here we are on a relatively short flight in the night with relatively heavy snowfall. And we get on short final, and Frank says, well, listen, it's you know, you're flying. I'm totally comfortable with that, but it's going to be a timed approach. You know, are you okay with that? And I, Absolutely. So we talked about it in the event we go miss. What are we going to do? How much fuel do we have? Do we have enough fuel to come back and try again? Or are we going to have to go directly to an alternate? So we decided, well, if we're going to go miss, let's not fool around, even though we have probably a little bit more extra fuel to try it one more time. But considering how bad the storm is, let's just go straight to the alternate, our first alternate, in the event we have to go miss. And we both agreed. So here we are on this timed uh, localizer-only approach right at MDA, and I was concentrating so much on keeping my ground speed just right so that we had every effort to reach our missed approach point right exactly at the time and altitude that we needed it. And sure enough, Frank looks up and he says, okay, I'm looking for the approach lights. You're coming up on your time. Um, approach lights are coming up. I don't see anything yet. And then the time was expired. So the missed approach point was located at the threshold of the runway. And, you know, if you get to that point and you can't make a stable, normal descent to land, it doesn't matter if you can see the runway at the missed approach point, you're going to go around anyway. So we kept that in mind and we decided that, hey, if we're if we don't see the runway environment or the threshold of markings or the lights, we're just going to go ahead and go around. So as we are approaching, you know, in the snowstorm with the lights on and all you see, it's like that Star Wars effect where you're going warp speed because the snow is flying by you at 150 knots or what or whatnot. And, um, and so we're getting there and he's like, well, I'm looking, your timer's about up. You got about five seconds left. Okay. I'm looking outside. I'm looking for lights. I'm looking and he goes, okay, there's your time. Uh, crap. He goes, okay, you go missed, go missed. And so I started to execute a missed approach procedure, which is to bring the thrust levers to the maximum forward position, which is the toga position. Um, and so as I'm starting to bring the nose up to a level position and bringing the thrust levers to the full forward position, he goes, wait, wait, I see it. I see it. And as I look up, I can see the lights. I can see the runway edge markings and the, and the runway uh, threshold lights. And I'm like, oh, I got it. It's no problem. I, I'll continue. I'll land. So brought back the power, landed the aircraft successfully. There was so much snow that the snowplows couldn't keep up with it. And we stopped the aircraft on the runway in what inevitably became a whiteout condition. 
So with the aircraft completely stopped, we waited for the snow to settle, and the tower controller comes back and says, uh, good job, regional airlines. Uh, can you uh, make it back to the ramp? And my captain said, yeah, we let's just wait for the snow to settle before we move. And, you know, we have the lights and we can see, uh, you know, at least a thousand feet down the runway. That's no problem. So we taxied to the gate. And as soon as we got to the gate, my captain called the dispatcher and let him know uh, in not so uh, calm a way that, in fact, the glide slope was out of service and, you know, it was, uh, we barely got in and it was a very stressful approach. promised in this next segment we're going to talk about what's in the flight kit bag so in the flight bag as you see them being drug around the airport by flight crews all over the country is a place where we keep all of our flight manuals our headsets flashlights pens uh, the things that we might need during the flight and every time I think of a kit bag I'm reminded of a story a story that occurred probably about five or six years ago. I was a line check airman at the time for regional airlines, and I had the distinct pleasure of conducting IOE with new hires. It was absolutely my favorite thing to do. A new hire is always just so excited and so overwhelmed at the same time. And I had this one individual that really stood out. He was a very young man who showed up for the sequence that we were scheduled to fly together. And so we reviewed uh, what to expect flying out of Chicago O'Hare and, you know, the frequencies and the ramp and, and just a, an overview of the general uh, what to expect on your first leg. And... As we approached the airplane, he did his pre-flight duties to walk around and whatnot, and we did that one together. And as is a requirement to do at least one with a Czech airman uh, to get signed off for that. So we did that. He did a good job. And as we got into the uh, flight deck and I started to get settled and get everything out of my kit bag that I would need, I noticed that he didn't have a kit bag. And I kind of scratched my head and I asked him I said do you do you want to bring your kit bag in here you know you can he says well I, I don't have a kit bag I have my electronic flight bag my my iPad my checklist and a pen what more do I need and I kind of thought about that for a moment and I thought well yeah that's the bare bones minimum that you're required to have but you know you might want sunglasses or maybe some scratch paper or note paper or, you know there's maybe even a cereal bar or something to nibble on on a busy day you might get a little hungry and he goes oh well I've got some of that stuff out in my suitcase that we leave in the closet 
But no, I don't think I'll need any of that stuff. So I gave him his uh, his IOE instruction, and he did fine. But towards the end of the day, he's, I noticed he starts asking me a lot of questions about kit bags. Oh, where'd you get your kit bag? And, you know, is it big enough? And how much did it cost? And I'm like, oh, so you're now you're interested in kit bags, huh? He goes, well, he goes, I, I think I need a place to put some more stuff. And I noticed you, you have your own headset. I, I might bring my own headset. And I said, well, yeah. I said, it's a good idea. You know, in the wintertime, you might get cold. You might want to pack a sweater in there. So there's plenty of plenty of stuff you're going to need to stow. You're going to want to stow. So, yeah, what is in the kit bag? Well, in my particular kit bag, I won't go into too much detail, but I can tell you I have a small bag, what I affectionately call my pharmacy, with aspirin and Band-Aids and, and even a toothbrush and toothpaste in there. I wouldn't want to offend anyone, so I occasionally use the lav to brush my teeth um, between legs or after a crew meal. Uh, I also have, of course, my my flight uh, EFB and uh, my own headset. I'm currently using a Telex 850, uh, which I do find relatively comfortable. The Airbus cockpit is not that noisy, not as noisy at least as the the 737 cockpit or the 7576, which has uh, very strong blowers and can get a little draining after a long flight. The downside to the Telex 850 that I see is that after a very long flight, they do kind of clamp on your head and leave an indentation on your hair. So that could create a headache if you wear them continuously for too long. I also have pens and paper, and I have quite a few extra uh, charts for the overwater flying that we do as well. So those are just a few of the items that are in my kit bag. We will dive into a little more on a future show. As this episode of Squawk Ident comes to an end, I'd like to finish off with one final segment that I'd like to call Contribute a Verse. You know, we all have been doing our part to reduce our carbon footprint and give back to our environment and our community. This week, as I was entering the grocery store to grab a meal on one of my layovers, I decided to purchase a $4 tote that can easily fit in my overnight bag. Now I have plenty of these cloth grocery bags in my vehicle and at home littered around my garage, but of course every time you need it, they're not with you. They're in your car or in your garage. So I wanted to get something that I could keep in my my overnight bag so that to save a buck or two, I'll find a grocery store close to the layover hotel and purchase at least one meal uh, at a grocery store deli versus spending 20 or $30 at a restaurant. So as I entered the grocery store there in Lahui on this last week, I purchased a uh, tote 
that folds up real flat and I can stick in one of the pockets of my overnight bag. The trick here, of course, is to remember that it's there and pull that out before I head out to go find some food. How do you do your part? I'd love to hear about it. As a matter of fact, I'd love to hear comments and suggestions from you. Feel free to send me an email at aviatortony at gmail.com. That's Alpha Victor, the number eight, Romeo Tango, Oscar November Yankee at gmail.com. So to recap, episode two of Squawk Ident, we talked about the sequence from the line, how the Phoenix Overnight turned out with a review of a really good Irish pub in downtown Phoenix, Seamus McCaffrey's. And let's not forget the treat we got to enjoy, the Teeling Whiskey, small batch. We also talked about surviving a line check. You got a taste of On the Run, a quick six-miler in Lahui this week. We also spoke about what it's like to do a runway change last second coming out of Los Angeles. A good tale of airport closures and snowstorms and a taste of what is in the kit bag or the flight case. We also gave time to contributing a verse. I look forward to having you join us on episode 3 where we'll tackle the differences in the flying between regional airlines and legacy carriers. We'll have a good story about a laser strike, and we'll even dive into the uniform. We'll even have some stories about relationships and social media as well. All that and more on the next Squawk Ident. Until then, thank you for listening. Take care, and take care of each other.